wonderful study of Nehemiah. Now the wall was finished, the people gathered to celebrate. This was an excellent opportunity to present the word of God and to dedicate the wall. So here's a people who have been crying out to God for help to rebuild their wall and to make their city safe. God helped them through Nehemiah and through a lot of answered prayers. And uh, they were amazed and overjoyed, clearly hungry to know more about God. And Steve has been sharing about that. Well, sometime later, they came and gathered to hear the word of God again. And we read about this in Nehemiah 9. And that's what we're going to look at today. So turn to Nehemiah 9. This time they looked more closely, not only at their personal lives, but at their history. And it began to dawn on them that the reason that they were in such distress is that their ancestors had turned away from God many years before, and they were reaping the results. Under King Solomon, they used to be one of the leading nations of the world. And look at them now, you know, barely hanging on. So Steve has entitled this series, Moving Forward Together. I think it's a great title. It's a great way to look at it. Now, chapter 9 recounts much of the past and a lot of backward steps that they took. We call it backsliding today. Uh, and so I would say it's, we're under the same theme, moving forward together. And I want to entitle mine, or at least pull us in the direction, without this, forward becomes backward. Moving forward together, but without this, forward becomes backward. We'll start reading in chapter 9. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I think it just smooths it out and carries us along. And so, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Verse 1. On October 31st, the people returned for another observance. This time they fasted and dressed in sackcloth and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. The book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them for about three hours. Then for three hours, three more hours, they took turns confessing their sins and worshiping the Lord their God. Three hours reading, listening to the word, and three hours responding to what was read. And no doubt they gathered in groups because it says that they took turns confessing to one another, to sharing and here's the interesting thing. They not only confessed their own sins, but they confessed the sins of their ancestors. Now, I've been thinking about that. You know, we're very connected to our ancestors, to those who have gone before us. We are what we are, partly because of our relatives, as well as because of our own decisions. Their sins affect us. And our sins affect our children. And we need to recognize that, it seems to me. God has designed a way to break with the past. Our past of being locked into sin and our past locked into our ancestors and their sin. And that's by confessing our sins and acknowledging the sins of those who have gone before us and have influence on what we are like. We need to according to this passage as we read it, keep short accounts. Because without this, dealing with our sin, 
forward always turns to backward. Verse 5. Then the leaders of the Levites, and he names them, I'm not going to, called out to the people, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And then they continued, Praise his glorious name. It is far greater than we can think or say. And then they start to pray. To pray to the Lord. A prayer that will go to the end of chapter 9. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer in the Old Testament. It starts, You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve and give life to everything. And all the angels of heaven worship you. Now, if we don't believe in God and have a high view of God and who he is, of course, there really is no reason to confess. Like, what are we confessing about? But when we start by acknowledging his greatness and praising him, that reminds us that we are really created beings, dependent beings, very much needing God. And part of the process to genuinely moving forward and continuing to move forward, like, like we've been hearing about through the first book, uh, chapters of Nehemiah, is uh, confessing, keeping short accounts. Now, 7 to 38 contains the prayer that they made to God that day. We only have time to look at some of the high points, and then I hope I can uh, show you how this whole thing applies to us today. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to look deeply into our flaws and even into our sins so that we can keep short accounts, that we can confess our sins to you and and keep moving forward and have a sincere faith as a result to pass on to our children, to the next generation. Amen. Verse 7. You are the Lord who chose Abram and brought him from the Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. When he proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gergesites. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. Looking back on their history, they could see that God had a plan. It was a plan of redemption. Abraham was an important part of it. Abraham not only fathered their nation, he demonstrated that people uh, connect with God and his covenant by faith. Now the prayer goes on to praise God for all the ways he took care of them. And so I, I, I won't go into all those ways, but all of a sudden we come to verse 16. So he's been listing these things the way he t- God takes care of them, right? Okay. Verse 16, but our ancestors were a proud and stubborn lot. Your translation may say arrogant lot. And they refused to obey your commands. Now that's the issue that would keep coming up over and over again through their history. God invites people into relationship, okay? And people respond to follow him. God blesses these people, and these people begin to enjoy his benefits. 
And at some point, something changes. People stop listening. Now, this is not necessarily that generation, the next generation, next generation, someone there. They stop listening. They become arrogant, like this scripture says, and that word is used often in the Old Testament. Now, what on earth is there to become arrogant about? You ever thought about that? Inevitably, inevitably, it's about success, seems to me, about the ability to enjoy the good life and feel like I have contributed to it. Feelings of accomplishment, forgetting that whatever we have, whatever they had, is a gift from God in the first place. And at that point, moving forward, becomes moving backward. Then the prayer goes on to recount many more things that God did for them. Verse 25. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took over houses full of good things with cisterns already dug and vineyards and olive groves and orchards in abundance. So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. Now, this sounds really good. Enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. NIV says, they reveled in your great goodness. Life under God, life was good under God, so why didn't they just keep living that way and kind of live happily ever after? Prosperous and successful and serving God and passing on the torch of faith to the next generation. Verse 26, but, but despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They threw away your law. They killed the prophets who encouraged them to return to you. And they committed awful blasphemies. How could they do all that? What happened? Anger? Anger against the truth that judged their actions and attitude? Um, Self-will? Self-indulgence? Reaction against authority? Rebellion against authority? What was it? Whatever it was, because it was not dealt with God's way by humble confession, there came a day, generation later, two generations later, whatever, when people woke up to a changed society. Believing in God and his message had become politically incorrect. The influence makers of Israel had removed God from their national consciousness. And, persuade, and persecuted and ridiculed and got rid of those who spoke out for God. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Verse 27, so you handed them over to their enemies. See, the moving forward had given away to moving backward. Now, verse 21 to 30, 27 to 31 show us that this didn't just happen once. This pattern continued through their history. Turning away from God times of trouble, people crying out to God, God bringing deliverance. Turning away from God, times of trouble, people crying out to God, God bringing deliverance. This, this is important because this trend away from God from one generation to the next is exactly why confession and repentance is so important. Each generation, our generation, last generation, next generation must 
deal with their own sin and rebellion and do their own repenting. And if they don't, it becomes increasingly harder for the next generation to believe anything about that, to want to follow the Lord, to feel that this has integrity. Verse 32. And now our Lord, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let all the hardships we have suffered be as nothing to you. Like, this is hurting. Pay attention, Lord. I know we deserve it. Great trouble has come upon us and upon our kings and princes and priests and prophets and ancestors from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. Notice of all the enemies that they had over the years who triumphed over them in various ways, they particularly mentioned the Assyrians. Now their experience with the Assyrians was the turning point, kind of the point of no return for them as a nation. That's getting ahead of the story. Just hang on to that. I want to, uh, to show you how it applies to us, I need to jump backward a ways, okay? So we've come up to there in Nehemiah and in the prayer, and now we jump back. Many years before, in 971, Solomon was sworn in as king of Israel. God gave him the awesome task of not only bringing the nation together, but building a wonderful, beautiful temple. One of the wonders of the world, actually. It took 20 years to do that, but he, he accomplished it and dedicated it to the Lord. Now, this was not only a dedication of a, that magnificent place to worship, it was a de- dedication of a nation to serve God and bless the nations around them. So that night after the ceremonies, the Lord appeared to Solomon with some important further instructions. He warned Solomon of a danger they would always face as followers of the Lord. The danger, the temptation would be to follow other gods. To just kind of slip away and go other directions. You know, seemingly more exciting gods. More indulgent gods. And God told him, to put it in our words, if you do that, you're going to suffer. These gods won't save you when you get into trouble. Other nations are going to fight you. They're going to keep fighting you and defeat you. And these gods won't be able to save you. And then the Lord made an awesome promise. But he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.13 That's the one way that will be the one way, the one sure way to move forward and continue to move forward. Now that statement became a most important abiding invitation for Israel. Something they would keep coming back to. But that statement also is an abiding invitation for any who claim to be the people of God. Like us. We're born sinners. Our bent is to sinning. Somehow that's passed on from generation to generation. And if we don't recognize that, we'll fail to pass on our faith. Because we'll have nothing to pass on. Grace, God in his grace, gives us a way to deal with it. So we do have something to pass on. But if we don't, we won't. So 250 years goes by. The history of Israel has been a series of cycles. Between ignoring God and suffering the consequences and then crying out to him. Until finally, 
Their sin and rebellion kept them from acknowledging God at all. And that's when the Assyrians entered the world scene. They were just rising to power at that time and taking over some of the known world. Now they were among the, uh, among the most brutal people in the world. The very mention of the name of the, in their ancient world inspired dread. They ran a vicious war machine, subjugating most of the nations around them. They made a science of terrorism. They would mutilate their prisoners to keep them in line. They even would flay alive the, those who rebelled. Pretty well as bad or maybe worse than beheading. You know, they were the ancient equivalent of ISIS. God had given Israel chance after chance to repent and acknowledge him as God. And finally, when they refused so completely to do that, he removed his protection. And in 732... With the nation's hedge of protection removed, the Assyrians invaded. Now that first attack wasn't to destroy Israel completely, but to traumatize the people and bring them into subjection. To inflict shock and fear, terror, so that they would uh, become paying subjects to the Assyrian Empire. According to the prophets, and you can read about that in Amos and Hosea, Isaiah, you know, they all talk about this. This attack was a warning from God Almighty. A warning that if they didn't respond and repent and acknowledge him, they would face a worse judgment. So what did they do? Get back to the repenting is hard. It's hard on the pride to say, I am wrong. I have been living wickedly. Please forgive me and Restore your blessing. That is so hard. There's a relatively obscure verse in Isaiah 9 that tells us how they did respond. When the attack was over and they discovered a mess for sure, ruins of collapsed buildings, heaps of rubble, fallen bricks, uprooted trees, just a mess all over. So what would they do? Now repenting and turning to God just didn't seem to be on the radar for the leaders of Israel. But they needed to assure the people somehow. So this is what they said in Isaiah 9.10. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. And in case there's any doubt about that, what it means... Verse 9, the verse just ahead of it says that they said this with pride and arrogance in their hearts. This was their way of avoiding repenting. We will not give in. In the next few years, they began to rebuild and things seemed to go back to normal. They clearly didn't need God very badly. They had prosperity still. And they had eyes on making other alliances that would kind of keep Assyria back and they figured they could do that. They could stand on their own. But we know from history that those leaders were wrong, dead wrong. The Assyrians finally got tired of trying to deal with them. They attacked again and destroyed them as a nation. Now I'd like to jump ahead to today. Just before we went to Alberta, Nova and I ran into James and Jacinta at Starbucks. And we got talking about prophecy and what's going on in the world. And James recommended a book called The Harbinger. How many have read that? There's a few. Okay. Um, 
by Jonathan Kahn. Um, so I phoned uh, the bookstore and they didn't have it, went to Indigo and they did have it. So uh, it's sold in pretty well all the booksellers. And hey, James is right. This is a must read for understanding the big changes that are happening in our world. It's written in narrative style, so, it, so it's easy to follow. It, it grabs you. It's a narrative, but it isn't fiction. The characters are fiction, uh, but the, the story is unfold. all our facts of back then and today. And he shares some amazing details that I had no idea about. Now, a harbinger is a sign that something bad is about to happen. It's a warning of dire consequences. Jonathan Kahn shows how the same nine harbingers or warnings of disaster that were given to Israel now face the most powerful, most prosperous, most influential, but increasingly godless and corrupt country in our world, which is America. Maybe you don't all agree with that. You can read the book, but think about the news. Now, America is not Israel, but God is God, and there are some amazing parallels. So I'd like to give you a quick survey, because what affects the United States affects us all, and it really affects the world. We saw that in 2008. We all know that when the pilgrims came to the New World, they came to establish a country in which they could worship God in freedom. You know, there's a lot of argument, is, is the states a Christian country or not? And I'm not going to get into that, but the fact is that's how it started. What I didn't know was that on April 30th, 1789, when America's first government was completed and sworn in, that swearing in was designed to honor God and ask for his favor. In fact, they called the people of America, at least on the East Coast there, to a day of prayer and dedication. Here's the proclamation that went out to the public. He said, on the morning of the day on which our illustrious president will be invested with his office, the bells will ring at nine o'clock when the people may go up to the house of God and in a solemn manner commit the new government to the holy protection and blessing of the Most High. The church bells rang that morning for 30 minutes, calling the people to come up and pray, to pray to the Most High for the new government and to commit it to God, to his holy protection and blessing. Like, can you believe that? Like, can you even imagine how that's possible today? Later in the day, the president, along with the uh, senators and members of the House who had been duly elected as well, met at Federal Hall in the capital city, which was New York. Washington, D.C. wasn't anywhere at that time. They met at Federal Hall to be sworn in and present the inaugural address. George Washington put his hand on the Bible to take the oath of precedency and then led everyone, including the Senate and House of Representatives, in prayer. Then the president led the senators and members of the House on foot in a procession through the streets of the Capitol, which would be basically through what we now know as Ground Zero, to a little stone church, uh, a chapel, St. Paul's Chapel. And that's where the first official act of the new government of America took place. And it was praying for the blessing and protection of God. In the first 
ever presidential address that he made to this new nation, which he couldn't do by TV like he could now, but they certainly printed it and sent it out. He said this, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. These leaders had a strong sense that God had brought them to where they were, not just politics. He goes on, It would be particularly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplication to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, this his benediction may consecrate to the people of the United States a government instituted uh, for these uh, essential purposes. In this way, the newly formed country of America was dedicated to God. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody was a Christian or that it was a truly Christian country. It tells us that many were and that the leaders were concerned to have God's blessing. Now, if, if human nature is true to form as presented in the scriptures, we'll discover that, that uh, from what, it's not that easy to pass on faith from one generation to the next. And there will be cycles of people turning away from God, but there will also be evidence of God calling them back. In the early years of America, they experienced both. The rise of, of sinful living and all kinds of stuff that we read about in history, but also two great awakenings, the first great awakening and the second great awakening, one in the 1700s and one in the 1800s, when God called people back and many people turned to him. And then, as we all know, God raised up many influential evangelists and pastors over the years to proclaim the gospel. In the 1800s and 1900s, people like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, and, and, and many others were proclaiming the gospel. But in spite of pe inviting people into relationship, there's increasing pressure from the influence makers, the media, educators, politicians, to make America a completely secular country. And uh, uh, Jonathan Kahn, who's a Jewish, uh, a Messianic Jewish rabbi, says it well. He says, and, and I'm sure you'll follow this, in the middle of the 20th century, America began officially removing God from its national life. It abolished prayer and scripture reading from its public schools. As ancient Israel had removed the Ten Commandments from its national consciousness, so did the leaders and influence makers remove them from the public view in America, taking them down by government decrees from the walls of courthouses and, and so on. The very mention of God or Jesus in any personal or relevant context became more and more unwelcome and taboo and less for the purpose of mockery. And he says, Americans have increasingly turned to the idols of sensuality, greed, money, success, comfort, materialism, pleasure, sexual immorality, self-worship, self-obsession. And I fully believe that God, from time to time, taps a nation on the shoulder and says, listen up. What happens if a nation doesn't listen up? Well, at some point, God removes his hedge of protection and blessing. On September 11th, 2001, America was given a violent wake-up call. 
on that day that we now know as 9-11, the terrorists not only carried out their terrible act, it was a brazen, frightening, and unprecedented act of terror. Thousands were killed in the middle of America's largest and most influential city. And, you know, the, the response over the next few days kind of was amazing. It seemed like America might actually be listening to God. People flooded into churches around the country to pray. Within three days of 9-11, they had a, had a, a service that Billy Graham was invited to, to address the political leaders and the important power brokers in Washington. And he clearly called the nation to repentance. I watched it then. I remember it so well. I watch, remember watching the faces of the people listening. And I googled it this last week so that I could hear it again and also uh, read what it was he said. I'm going to share with you some of it. He said, today we come together in this service to confess our need of God. We've always needed God from the very beginning of this nation, but today we need him especially. We desperately need a spiritual renewal in this country, and God has told us in his word time after time that we need to repent of our sins. Can you imagine what some of the guys are feeling when they hear that? And return to him, and he will bless us in a new way. This event reminds us of the brevity and uncertainty of life. We never know when we too will be called into eternity. Yes, our nation has been attacked, buildings destroyed, lives lost, but now we have a choice whether to implode and disintegrate emotionally and spiritually as a people and a nation, or to choose to become stronger through all of this struggle, to rebuild on a solid foundation. And I believe that we are starting to rebuild on that foundation. You know, people have come going to church. That foundation is our trust in God. Now that message went, it didn't just, wasn't just to the politicians gathered there. It went across America and Canada. Probably a lot of you watched it too. Um, and around the world. I mean, this is a call to repentance that went around the world. And I remember, as I said, watching the faces of those dignified people listening that day. Some had open-type faces, and you could see that they were, were open to it. They were kind of drinking it in. But many were closed and either looked bored or angry. You know, like, how could anybody be saying these things in this enlightened age? We all know that that isn't true. The government needed to make a statement to the country at that time, an official statement, and the Senate majority leader did. He spoke for the government. He said this. He said, I know that there is only the smallest measure of inspiration that can be taken from this devastation. So we'd all agree with that. But there is a passage in the Bible from Isaiah that I think speaks to all of us at times like this. And he quoted, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The fig tree or the sycamore trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. Now he had no idea that this statement was a statement of judgment in the Bible, not of inspiration. It was Israel's vow of defiance against God's call to the prophets or through the prophets to repent. They didn't realize that. And you know, without that, forward will always give way to backward. Now, if God was attempting to awaken America, you could expect him to leave some plain slides, signs, to leave some tracks. 
you know, that you could say, yeah, that has to be God. Well, this book details an amazing amount of tracks <laughs> that God has left. It is just so worth the read. Uh, uh, as one harbinger after another harbinger um, was fulfilled. I can only give you a quick outline. I hope it whets your appetite. Number one, the terrorists in the planes targeted not just any building to make a point, which terrorists usually do. They targeted the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. These two buildings, these two building complexes, represented America's power and domination in the world. The center of financial power and the center of military power. Second, the statement of resolve and defiance made by the leaders of Israel allowed them to avoid any repentance talk. And there was sure no repentance talk from any of the political leaders in America either, at least the ones who spoke publicly. They said, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. Yeah, the sycamores are cut down, but we will put, put cedars in their place. Number three, when the great wall towers of the World Train Center came crumbling down, which I'm sure most of you can re just remember the scene. I mean, it's been played so many times. When the dust settled, they discovered at the corner of Ground Zero, one building still intact. It was the little stone church in which President George Washington dedicated himself and the nation to God 202 years before. How did it remain unscathed? Well, it had a, a large tree beside it, and when flying debris from one of the towers came flying at the church, it hit that tree standing by the church, tore it out, roots and all, but that took the shock, and the church remained pretty much unscathed. The tree, coincidentally, was one that isn't grown commonly in America, a sycamore tree. The vow in Isaiah 9.10 says, The sycamores are cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Believe it or not, they actually planted a very large cedar there in ground zero. They didn't plant another sycamore to take its place, they, but a cedar. A gigantic train brought it in and let it down, and they had a ceremony. The person officiating at the ceremony said, the tree of hope is planted in the very spot where a 60-year-old sycamore stood the morning of September 11, 2001. This ground zero tree of hope will be a sign of the indomitable nature of human hope. And still no repentance talk or bringing God back in any way into the public square. Number five, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. And we know that hewn stone or cut stone is way stronger than bricks that have been made and, and hardened in the sunlight. So that was there. They were going to rebuild like that. But it's really interesting. If you Google cornerstone at ground zero, you can read about it from the New York Daily News and some other places too from that day. A 20-ton 20 20 block of polished granite from Upper New York, cut out of the mountains in Upper New York, uh, was brought in to be the cornerstone for the new tower. Governor George Pataki, uh, Pataki um, said this at the ceremony. He said, Today, we the heirs of that revolutionary spirit of defiance 
Isn't that a great choice of words? Lay this cornerstone and unmistakably signal to the world the unswerving, unwavering strength of this nation and our resolve to fight for freedom. And then he proclaimed, today we build the Freedom Tower. Well, that was laid, that stone, in 2004. After a bunch of squabbling over what that building should look like and how that cornerstone should fit in, they actually took it out again in 2006. So it never was used, but it was put there in a pretty symbolic act. And, of course, the stock market registered its greatest one-day fall after 9-11. And you'll have to look in the book for this because I can't flesh it out. Seven years later, in 2008, the, the, in the face of the mortgage and banking scandals and all the things that went along with that and the bailouts and the not bailouts, the fall was even great, one day fall was even greater. And that affected the whole world. Uh, you have to get that from the book and why it's significant. Joel Rosenberg, another Messianic Jew, has writ, written a book that's just come out called Implosion. And the byline is, can America recover from its economic and spiritual challenges in time? And then he says this. He says, if we don't have a third great awakening in the very near future, this country is going to implode. Some Americans are looking at this like we're just in a downturn in the economy and we'll pull out of this. I hope so. The evidence suggests that we are not just in decline, that we may be very close to heading into a death spiral from which we cannot pull out. So what do we do? First off, I say, not fear, but prayer. We belong to God. God's working out his plan to, to wake up people, to wake up the world, to wake up America, which has sent so many missionaries and, and so many people to come to the Lord as a result of the schools and, and efforts of, of Americans. He's trying to wake them up. and He's trying to wake up his world, for sure. So, I'm not sharing this so that we fear what's going to happen next. And we could talk a whole lot about how in many parts of the world people are coming to Christ in bigger numbers than ever before. But I don't have time for that, probably. I thank you for really following with me and hanging in for this long of a message. Um, first off, make sure you're ready. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's important. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, hey, there's no better time to do it than now. And as we close, and Tennyson and the worship team will play another song, time to just say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, and secondly, pray for revival. The kind of turning to God that brings confession and repentance and forgiveness and blessing from God. We need to pray for that, for our country, for our neighbors, for our world. And remember the, the verse that God gave Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So pray and watch for signs of God at work. I'd say, hey, 
pick up the book, borrow it from someone. You can also Google it. You can Google The Harbinger and you can hear uh, Jonathan Kahn doing live interviews on TV, talking about this, talking about some of the details. So that's the least expensive way to start. But, uh, and, and you can Google some of the things I've talked about from ground zero. So just bow and silent respond to God. Whatever you feel God's calling you to do and to respond, do that. And the worship team will lead us in a, in a wonderful song that uh, I hope will open our hearts up to God.